Hi and welcome to a new episode of Om Filosofers Liv och Tankar, a pod where we discuss philosophy and philosophical development with current philosophers. I'm Fredrik Eriksson, liaison librarian in philosophy here at Lund University, and with me as usual I have Martin Jensson, associate professor in theoretical philosophy at Lund University. And with us today we have Anandi Hatiangadi, professor in theoretical philosophy at Stockholm University. Uh, and also Profetura Fellow at SCAS, uh, who's been specializing on the philosophy of mind and language. Welcome. Thank you. And as one of our ambitions is to let our guests talk about their philosophical development, it might be a good idea to start from the beginning and how you remember your first philosophical thoughts. So um, I should start by saying that my father is a philosopher. He's a philosophy professor at York University in Toronto. Um, And uh, also I have an uncle who's a philosopher. He was a philosophy professor when I was young at the University of Toronto. So I kind of grew up with a lot of philosophy around. Um, But the main effect of that, at least initially, was to make me really not want to do, have anything to do with philosophy whatsoever. And so when I was uh, when I was a teenager, I was adamant that I was going to do anything but philosophy at university. Um, and so if I had any philosophical thoughts at that time, I probably did my best to repress them. What was your your father's uh, view? Did he encourage you to become a philosopher, or was he sort of just? No, not not. He didn't encourage me specifically to become a philosopher. Um, he's a philosopher of science, and I think I had interests in the natural sciences, and I think he was quite happy for me to pursue those interests. Um, so what happened? You became a philosopher. Well, I, I went to, I, I started my undergraduate um, in biology, and I spent the first year studying biology. And there was a sort of... Um, elective there was you were allowed to take an elective in your first year and they wanted you to take at least one if not more courses in the humanities and the story in among the sciency people was that the easiest course to take if you were into science was a logic course because then you wouldn't mm. really have to write anything um, and so i took a logic course and i i really enjoyed it um, and then i thought Well, I don't really mind writing that much. And so for my second elective, I took a course on Plato and Aristotle. And I liked that too. And then I realized that I had basically used up all of my electives. And if I wanted to continue taking any courses outside of uh, biology and um, and the associated courses that one had to take for that um, degree, I would basically have to switch to a liberal arts degree. So I switched in my second year to a liberal arts degree, um, and I did not yet. I did not yet have to declare a major in philosophy, and I took everything, all sorts of other things. I took anthropology and archaeology and sociology and uh, uh, various kinds of art, languages of various kinds. And in every case, I tried to <laughs> see myself as doing that rather than philosophy. But I kept coming back, um, and in the end, I had to declare my major in philosophy, um, and I ended up taking more courses in philosophy than 
than one would have needed to, uh, to satisfy the major. So it seemed I had to just accept by the end of my undergraduate <laughs> that philosophy was where I was headed. Um, when did, did, did the idea that you were going to do a PhD in philosophy gradually come to you, or was there any particular event that got you thinking that well? Well, I think I think probably growing up in a family of academics, um, there's no special reason. You don't need a special reason to be to do a PhD in the sense that it seems it seemed to me like a fairly natural progression of what I was doing um, as an undergraduate. When I was an undergraduate, I was really interested in um, I was interested in the philosophy of science, just like my father. Though I was interested in um, feminism as well, and particular, particularly feminism uh, as it relates to the philosophy of science. Um, and so when I, when I went on to do my graduate work, um, I was basically interested in continuing to pursue the questions that I had started to think about as, uh, as an undergraduate at uh, a more advanced level. What, what, what questions were there? What questions was uh, the topic here in... Yeah, so what I was most interested in then, and still now, are questions about truth, uh, objectivity, and uh, rationality. Um, questions about scientific realism. So those were the questions that animated me then. Um, and I, I've sort of moved away in some respects from those initial interests, although I have been circling around related issues pretty much my whole career. Um, so what was the topic of your PhD? What was the main focus? Well, there's a, there's a bit of a story before we get there. So I went, <laughs> if that's all right. Of course. <laughs> okay, so I went to um, went to the University of Toronto for uh, to do a PhD, um, and the way it works there is that you do a few years of coursework and you do an exam, and then only then do you. Um, come up with a thesis project and um, I had I had gone there to work with Ian Hacking on philosophy of science and I was particularly interested in uh, the sort of social constructivism that was a big deal in those days. Uh, it was sort of the heyday of social constructivism when I went to the University of Toronto and it seemed like... Can you just say a few words about what that is? Oh right, so social constructivism... Okay, let me go back a bit. So when I went to the University of Toronto, I was interested, I had been interested in feminism and the philosophy of science. And in particular, I had been interested in sort of feminist critiques of science. These uh, struck me as critiques that basically pointed to gender biases that influenced research in uh, mainly the life sciences, so in biology and, um, and also the human sciences in general psychology and so forth. I was interested in these questions, and then along came social constructivism. This was, I mean, it had been in the air for a long time, but it was sort of at its peak right when I was finishing my undergraduate. And the social constructivists argued that all science is, uh, in some sense, socially constructed, that scientific knowledge is um, a product of social interests. So, as I saw it, feminist critiques of science often pointed to or showed up some 
powerful, the powerful influence of gender biases in both the articulation and the justification of scientific theories. So one really good example of this um, is uh, discussed by Cordelia Fine in her recent book, Testosterone Rex, um, where she discusses this familiar stereotype that men are predisposed to sexual promiscuity, preferring to seek out multiple partners rather than a single monogamous commitment, while women are supposed to be predisposed to find Prince Charming, um, get married, and, and then settle down. So one very influential hypothesis is that this kind of, these stereotypes about women and men, about gender, are really biologically based, right? Uh, the idea is that whereas male reproductive success increases with promiscuity, female reproductive success does not. And defenders of this hypothesis often cite a study that was uh, conducted in the uh, 1940s by a uh, uh, geneticist con called Angus Bateman um, on fruit flies. Right? And without going into too much detail, what he found is that both that male fruit flies uh, failed to produce there were more male fruit flies in his series of exp experiments that failed to produce any offspring than the females, and also that the males showed more greater variation in the number of mates. So it was a very successful strategy. There was a difference between, there was a bigger difference between the males who had more mates than yeah, with the females. So though the Bateman study was uh, cited uh, for a long time, it wasn't ever replicated until uh, far more recently by Brian Snyder and Patrick Gowdy, who came along in 2007 and found that Bateman had radically underestimated the margin of error in his results. Um, so that in two-thirds of the series, um, the data that he cited indicated that males, that males on the whole had produced more offspring than females, which of course is physically impossible because they both, uh, all the offspring had uh, both a father and a mother. They also found that his finding, the result that's always cited, um, was based only on the last two series of experiments, while the first four series showed that uh, females benefited from promiscuity as well. So this is a, an excellent case where feminism interacted with science uh, to call out certain um, ways in which biases, preconceptions, or stereotype might influence the way in which um, science was conducted. But at the same time that these feminist critiques of science were beginning to gain traction in the philosophy of science, there was another trend that I thought uh, was, had been around for a while, but that was really gaining momentum right when I was finishing my PhD and went, um, went sorry, finishing my undergraduate and went to the University of Toronto to uh, start my PhD. And this was uh, social constructivism. So social constructivists argue that all knowledge um, is socially constructive, so socially constructed, that there are no objective, culture transcendent standards of truth or rationality, um, only standards that are constructed by or are relative to or grow out of particular social groups. Uh, can I ask, how, how does this, uh, I mean, mathematical truths, are they also socially constructed? According to the social constructivists, I think, yes, uh, mathematical truths are equally socially constructed. They see no objective standards of truth or rationality um, that would justify mathematical beliefs of one kind over another. Um, so in arguing that all knowledge is socially constructed, 
I think that they were really kind of on the side of the feminists, in this, and certainly they were feminist social constructivists as well, um, because what they were trying to do is show that scientific knowledge is no better than, epistemically no better than, the kinds of practices um, that uh, were generally thought to be excluded by this. So women's ways of knowing was something that you might have thought uh, at that time was something that was to be denigrated. The idea was, well, you know, women and men might think about things in completely different ways. Um, science is associated with the masculine perspective. And other ways of knowing, say, more intuitive ways of knowing are associated with a more feminist, uh, feminine perspective. And the idea was that they're all roughly on a par. They're equally good, epistemically speaking. And so this was the kind of aim of that of that of that research uh, program, the social constructivist research program, it had this kind of um, nice connection with feminism, but at the same time I thought that it did exactly the opposite of what it intended to do. So I felt like it sort of pulled the, pulled the rug out from underneath the, kind, the most powerful feminist critiques of science, like the one that I just mentioned, the critique of Bateman's um, theory, which relies on the assumption that there's such a thing as good and bad evidence, and that's not just a matter of what your contemporaries will let you get away with. Um, so I was really interested at that point in when I went to U of T in, in arguing against social constructivism, defending scientific realism against uh, a kind of social constructivist um, objections. And was your supervisor during this time Ian Hacking? Uh, yeah, so he I went to work with Ian Hacking. Um, and, and I know we have a course book uh, of his called uh, Social Construction of What? Yeah. What's that about? So Ian Hacking was working on that book when I started my PhD. Um, and I, I was actually a uh, research assistant on it. You'll see my name actually in the acknowledgments. I'm going to check. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I worked particularly with him on the, on the sections on feminism and social constructivism. Um, yeah, so that, that book, I think Hacking and I saw, didn't, really see eye to eye on on the value of social constructivist thinking about science. I think I was far more inclined to defend the sort of enlightenment values of truth and reason um, and, and sort of basic, the basic objectivity of the rationality of scientific method as against him who was, he was a little bit more inclined to be sympathetic towards social constructivism. Did you stick with your topic all the way through your PhD thesis, or did well, you change? Well, about three years into my PhD um, in uh, at the University of Toronto, I had done my coursework and just started working on the actual doctoral dissertation. I got a I got a travel grant um, to go for six months to the Department of History and Philosophy of Science in Cambridge, which was an excellent place for me to go to work on exactly those questions about scientific realism and social constructivism because the department was pretty much evenly divided between philosophers who were generally sympathetic to scientific realism and um, the, the historians who were generally sympathetic towards social constructivism. When I went there, I was so... Um, 
I, I mean, I found it a kind of life-changing experience going to Cambridge. Um, I think it was hugely stimulating to be thrown into a different intellectual culture, um, to move away from my hometown and, you know, be challenged in ways that I hadn't really been challenged, I think, before. So that was an excellent move. And within a few months uh, of my visiting uh, studentship, I applied to complete my PhD there. And so in the fall of the following year, our, I started there with Martin Kush as my supervisor. And Martin Kush was really a very ardent promoter of social constructivism, particularly what's called the Strong Program in Sociology of Knowledge, um, and is associated with Barry Barnes and David Bloor. So Martin and I had a very kind of what shall I say, antagonistic relationship. We really, uh, we really uh, fought quite a lot. Our supervisions were kind of like these crazy shouting matches <laughs> that would go on for hours and hours and hours while the people in the department were, I think, probably suffering from listening to our, our increasingly raised voices. Uh, did you find these conversations or shouting matches to be constructive? I found them both destructive and constructive, I should say. Um, they were destructive in the sense that I spent the entire first year coming in with one thesis proposal after another and having it completely trashed by Martin. Um, but constructive in the sense that because I really, you know, in that whole time I didn't back down. I think it's taught me to deal with um, kind of the kind of critical... Uh, approach that people can take to one's work in philosophy. Um, I sort of, I learned how to just stick to my guns and defend myself and defend my views um, in a sort of trial of fire <laughs> situation. <laughs> yeah. And you completed your PhD there in Cambridge? Yeah, so I completed my PhD in Cambridge. Again, I think... Um, the, so what happened was that Martin, so Martin really wanted to, um, he really wanted to persuade me. He, you know, in one supervision after the next, he wanted to persuade me that, uh, I should be more sympathetic towards, uh, the sociology of scientific knowledge. And by the end of my first year, I had almost nothing to show for all of my hard work because he kept trashing every proposal that I came in with. And so, at the end of that, um, at the end of that period, he gave me uh, Kripke, Sol Kripke's book uh, called Wittgenstein on Rules and um, Private Language, to read that. And I think he was thinking that. So, so Kripke's book um, came out, I think, in 1982, around the same time as a book by David Bloor called Wittgenstein on Rules and Institutions, and the two books are very closely related. They have, they have a lot in common. Um, and they're sort of picking up on similar themes from Wittgenstein. Uh, I had read Bloor's book, and I hadn't been especially impressed by it. And I think that Martin's thought was that I should read Kripke's book in the hope that I would be persuaded by that, at least, since uh, Kripke is well, um, widely regarded to be one of the foremost philosophers of our time. 
And so I think it was in an effort to finally persuade me uh, that he that he gave me Kripke's book, and that was uh, that ended up being the focal point of my thesis. So I remember I got the book at the end of the first year, and I spent the summer thinking about it. And by the end of that summer, I had started to form a view about how to respond uh, to Kripke's argument. And then um, that was really the starting point for my, for my dissertation, which was a response to Kripke's skeptic. So that's what it turned out to be in the end. That's what it turned out to be in the end, yeah. yeah. So what year do you fi- did you finish? Um, okay, so the year af- after my first year, my second year, I basically spent um, uh, writing the entire draft of my thesis. So I finished that, it must be in 1999. Um, I had a f- complete draft of my thesis at the end of the second year. Partly, I think, because Martin was away that year. He was on sabbatical. <laughs> Did you get another supervisor during that time? I got another yeah. supervisor, yeah. My supervisor was um, Peter Lipton, uh, who was very, very, exactly the opposite of Martin in the sense of, uh, I, I, I mean, in his relationship with his supervisees. So he was very supportive and very, very sort of... Um, Yeah, very constructive, uh, not at all destructive. Critical, but not not uh, not in the same way. He uh, he was also, I think, on my side in the sense that he was a defender of scientific realism, and so that it made it easier to work with, or it made for a much smoother working relationship. Though I'm still glad that I had the chance to fight it out with Martin because I think it had its it had sort of lasting benefits on my ability to withstand criticism. But with Peter Lipton as my supervisor for that one year, I wrote a draft of my thesis. And at the end of the year, I submitted it um, to uh, an ap- a kind of postdoctoral grant uh, at Trinity College in Cambridge. And I was awarded that at the end of my second year. And so I spent the third year of my PhD, so until uh, 2000, 2001, um, because of the time that it takes for having the viva and so on. I spent it just sort of refining the arguments that I had put down in my second year and expanding some of the points in there. And then I spent the rest of the, um, uh, time that I had this, uh, postdoctoral research grant turning my PhD thesis into a book and a number of publications um, yeah, but it took me, the, the, the thing is that Kripke's skeptical argument, though it, it was central to, or the, that kind of view was really central to the kind of sociology of scientific knowledge, because I ended up working on Kripke's version of the argument and the literature that that had spawned, I wound up really doing nothing that's obviously related to the philosophy of science anymore. I had moved away from uh, the sorts of issues that had motivated me, that had gotten me there in the first place. And when I went after the, after the postdoctoral fellowship, when I went to Oxford, I, um, I went there basically as a mainstream al- analytic philosopher of mind and language, because that is what my research ultimately ended up being about. I see. 
so the book you mentioned is, is your 2007 book, Thoughts and Thoughts. That's right, yeah. Um, but once you were finished and you have sort of transitioned over to philosophy of mind and language, did you sort of have unresolved issues or questions that you wanted to get back to in the philosophy of science? Or were you now happy in the philosophy of language and mind? Well, I was very happy in the philosophy of language and mind. I think I went when I went to Oxford... I was really hired as a philosopher of mind. That was where they had a teaching need. And so uh, I was asked to teach philosophy of mind, um, and I did that every year that I was at Oxford. And that I, I, I enjoyed that very, very much. I found that really very rewarding. Um, and then at that point, I guess, my research, which had kind of come out of my thesis went off in a number of different directions, though all of, the, all of them, in the end, seemed to circle around similar themes. So to, to go back a little bit, the Ar- Kripke's skeptical argument, the argument that, um, that I spent all that time thinking about for my dissertation and then my book, um, is an argument to the effect that there's no fact of the matter what any speaker means by any word. This is kind of a radical anti-representationalist theory, and the argument that Kripke gives for it is pretty compelling. But what's sort of central to that argument, according to a lot of people, and which is what I picked up on in both my thesis and my book, is this claim about the normativity of meaning. So Kripke claims this is essential to his argument, particularly to his rejection of any naturalistic theories of what makes it the case that an expression has the meaning that we take it to have rather than some other meaning or none at all. Kripke's objection to naturalism in particular relies on this claim that meaning is normative. And sort of lying in the background of Kripke's um, claim there is the following very simple argument Meaning is normative. There are no normative facts, so there are no meaning facts. So this is the sort of simple argument that I thought was kind of unstated. It was in the background of Kripke's argument. My response to Kripke's argument involved denying that meaning is normative, particularly in the sense that's required for the second premise of the argument to go through, right, the premise that states that um, that there are no normative facts. Um, so my research in my thesis, though, it was very much focused on philosophy of language and mind, on the question, what makes it the case that uh, an arbitrary sentence or an arbitrary representation could be a mental representation, has the meaning or content that it does. That was the kind of philosophy of mind part. There was also this, uh, there was also a lot of it that had to do with metaethics and the theory of normativity. And so that kind of that aspect, the application of metaethics, questions about normativity to other domains, was something that became um, uh, a research interest of mine, particularly when I was at Oxford. And so I wrote about the normativity of belief, um, the normativity of content, and recently I've been working on the normativity of logic. And so this, these kinds of the issue of applying normativity outside of its traditional domain, the metaethical or the moral domain. That was one strand of my research after I finished my PhD and finished my book. And another strand, 
continued along the sort of meta-semantics, the, quest, the metaphysical questions about the nature of meaning and representation. So in my 2007 book, um, I was really rebutting this argument that Kripke finds in Wittgenstein. I was challenging the argument without presenting anything like a positive view about what meaning or content consists in. I left it open that certain views would be um, on the table. So for example, I left it open that there some naturalistic theory would turn out to be correct, that uh, what it is for mental representation to have the content that it does is determined by some physical or natural um, facts about a speaker or about the world. But then when I was at Oxford, uh, first of all, I started teaching a lot of philosophy of mind, but then David Chalmers came to give the uh, John Locke lectures there, and I found those hugely inspiring. Um, and I started to think that um, the sort of argument that he makes with regard to consciousness might be applied to um, intentionality or the theory of content. And so since moving to Sweden in 2013, that has been my main project that I've been working on. Can, can you spell that out a little bit? What, what you took from Chalmers there and how it influenced your later work? Yeah, so Chalmers argues very famously. In fact, this wasn't really so much in his John Locke lectures. The John Locke lectures uh, were, were kind of later development of the kind of framework that he used. But the, what Chalmers is really famous for is his argument about zombies um, in his book, his 1996 book uh, called The Conscious Mind. So there he argues that zombies are conceivable. What are zombies? Zombies are uh, beings that are physically identical to, they're physically duplicate, they're physical duplicates of um, conscious beings, but who lack phenomenal consciousness. So for example, my zombie twin is just like me in all physical respects, uh, exists at a, uh, a world that's physically just like our world, and yet my zombie twin lacks phenomenal consciousness. So when I have an experience of phenomenal red, there's something it's like to have that experience. For my zombie twin, there's nothing it's like to have that experience. So the lights are on, but nobody's home. So Chalmers argued that uh, zombies, such as my zombie twin, are conceivable, that we can have a clear and distinct conception of a scenario in which uh, that's just like the, the scenario that's, that uh, accurately describes our world, but where I am replaced uh, by a zombie. And he argued from the conceivability of zombies to their metaphysical possibility. So he argued that because we can conceive of it, and for specific reasons to do with, um, with how we're able to conceive of these scenarios, he, uh, he argued that they are metaphysically possible. And that means that it's possible, it's metaphysically possible that there's a world that's physically just like our world, but where there are either no conscious states or some of the conscious states are different from the, the, how they are in our world. And this violates the central uh, tenet of physicalism uh, about consciousness, which is the view that consciousness supervenes on the physical. And that means that any two worlds or any two individuals at a world uh, that are alike in physical respects 
um, must be alike in phenomenal respects also. So his argument is a kind of powerful challenge to this supervenience claim. And what I realized uh, when thinking about these issues with respect to consciousness is that a very similar argument can be made for an analogous position with regard to intentionality. So just as phenomenal zombies are conceivable, I don't exactly, I, I mean, I think semantic zombies are conceivable. A semantic zombie would be something like a physical duplicate of me, so my semantic zombie twin is a physical duplicate of me uh, who has brain states that are just like the brain states that I'm in when I represent, say, the sky is blue, and yet my uh, zombie twin has these brain states without, yet they lack representational content. They do not represent uh, the sky as being blue. Similarly, I think that there are certain kind of conceivable inverted content cases. So uh, I, where I think the sky is blue, I have a mental representation of the sky as being blue. My inverted uh, duplicate is in a physical state that's just like mine, but she does not represent uh, the sky as being blue. She might represent the sky as being green or being grew or something else. I see. So um, just to connect to uh, to other sort of philosophical um, uh, examples, is, is Davidson Swampman a uh, uh, semantic zombie? No, not necessarily. Um, so Davidson Swampman objection is an objection to kind of teleosemantic theories of, uh, of mental representational content, according to which the causal, historical, evolutionary history of a particular mental representation is, uh, determine, determines its content. Right. Um, so, the sw- so Swamp Man pre- is a being that emerges from the swamp fully formed um, and since it lacks this kind of uh, causal ideological history, according to the teleosemanticist, uh, Swamp Man doesn't have any, any thoughts. My view doesn't have any implications for whether Swamp Man has thoughts or not. So my view is that I, I agree with the Swamp Man objection to the extent that I think that the teleosemantic facts don't determine content. Um, but I also think uh, something which the Swamp Man objection tends to rely on, I also think is false, which is that the functional architecture of Swamp Man's brain or the, our capacity to communicate with Swamp Man, I think that this is not sufficient uh, for content either. So on the point about communication, it's sometimes argued that, that the, the, reason why, the reason why we think that uh, Swamp Man really does have thoughts uh, is because we're able to communicate with Swamp Man. So if we start talking to Swamp Man, we'll be, uh, it, it's as if ta- you're talking to anyone else. Um, uh, I don't think that that, I think that there's one way of understanding communication where um, it involves beliefs with contents on Swamp Man's parts and beliefs with contents on our part and language that is used to express those contents. 
And certainly if the assumption is that we can communicate in that kind of robust sense with Swamp Man, then according to my view, Swamp Man is not a semantic zombie. But that really hasn't settled the question whether the semantic properties of Swamp Man's beliefs uh, or the contents that are expressed by his utterances are determined by um, the way the world is in physical respects or not. So insofar as we're assuming that we're able to communicate with him in this rich sense, it doesn't settle the question. If we're assuming we're only able to communicate with him in a very weak sense, namely that um, you know he utters sentences and to us it, it has, a, has a meaning, then that doesn't strike me as sufficient to say that uh, Swamp Man has beliefs or with a, with a specific determinate content or utter sentences with a certain determinate content. I'm really tempted here to ask who would win a fight between Swamp Man and the zombies, but I won't. <laughs> but perhaps you could tell something about uh, your current research? Well, the one, one thing that I'm working on right now is this monograph arguing that, um, that the semantic facts and semantic properties don't supervene on the non-semantic. Um, this is the book that's inspired by uh, David Chalmers' argument in, uh, with regard to consciousness. So that's one major project that I'm working on. Um, another project that I'm interested in continues the sort of themes to do with normativity that uh, I, I was working on previously. Um, so I have another project on more explicitly looking at meta-ethical questions applied to epistemology. So one thing that motivates this is the idea that we make a lot of normative judgments about beliefs. So we don't just say that certain beliefs are true, others are rational, uh, and so forth. We don't just make those claims. We also say things like, you, should, you ought to proportion your belief to the evidence, or you ought to believe truths, or... You know, even in very specific cases, you ought to believe that um, that uh, human greenhouse gas emissions are a significant causal factor in increasing the average temperature of the environment, right? We think that there are things that people should believe. Um, uh, and so there seem to be a lot of normative claims being made there. And the question is, um, what do we want to say about those? At a from a kind of uh, meta-ethical level, we have questions about whether those normative claims are true or capable of the kind of truth that um, ordinary empirical claims are capable of. Where there are questions about the metaphysics of normativity: are there normative facts, um, normative epistemological facts, and there are further questions about how we can know these. Uh, facts, if there are such facts. And so that's one project that uh, I'm also working on. Um, and a third project that I'm interested in really follows on from that and connects back to some of the issues that I was interested in previously. And this has to do with the sort of recent emergence of um, what's commonly called post-truth politics. So the sort of populist movements uh, from the right around the world uh, that have propelled Donald Trump to power, that have um, led to uh, the sort of the Brexit vote in the UK, 
that seem to be supporting SD in Sweden and other nationalist movements around the world. This kind of post-truth populism is associated with uh, a kind of uh, rejection of the idea that there are objective standards of truth or that there's such a thing as objective truth, um, rationality, and it involves the sort of debunking of science. Uh, so, for example, there's the debunking of scientific research into um, climate change. And the idea that the populists want to press is that we can approach these questions, not just moral and political questions, but even empirical questions, by appeal to something like emotion or gut instinct. And I'm, so I'm interested in, the, in these, this phenomenon from uh, a number of different perspectives. So I'm interested in it from a kind of philosophy of psychology perspective, since there's a lot of research that's been done um, by psychologists on our uh, cognitive biases and the way in which we, um, we unfortunately <laughs> show certain failures of rationality in forming beliefs. Um, we're, we're motivated, we engage in wishful thinking, we tend to uh, jump to conclusions, we do all sorts of... Uh, we, we, we're liable to believe in conspiracy theories and so on and so forth. And so I'm interested in the psychological mechanisms that explain this, the, these kind of phenomena. And I'm also interested in the epistemological questions about rationality and truth and objectivity... So I'm inclined to go back and continue the argument against the sort of social constructivist views that seem to deny that there is such a thing as an objective standard of rationality or anything like objective truth. Um, uh, yeah, maybe that's all there is. I don't know. I'm, I think there's a third prong here as well that I can't remember. <laughs> so these are your current projects, and uh, these were three of your your current pro yeah. projects. Okay. Yeah. Uh, thanks so much for for joining us. Um, before we uh, leave you, we'd just like to promote our lecture series, "The Road Less Traveled." Uh, when you hear this, it's going to be too late to hear uh, Anandi, uh, but Sharon Ryder is joining us on December 11th. So uh, please go to that. We also want to thank LAM Studio for the possibility to record there. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.